Welcome to Love Bites. Love Bites. Love Bites. By Dr. Tara, your destination for sexual wellness and mindful relationship advice. Hope you're having an orgasmic day. Massages can be sexually arousing. Upgrade your foreplay with an amazing massage candle by Maud. It's body safe and skin softening. Once melted and extinguished, it can be poured on the skin. And let the fun begin. Check out the link in this episode's description and have an orgasmic time. Asian sex stereotypes and the benefits and challenges Asians experience as a sexual being. Let's talk about it. Hello, my loves. It's Dr. Tara, your favorite sex and relationship expert here at Love Bites, the podcast for sexual wellness and exploration. Today with us, I'm very excited to have a conversation with the badass Justine Ang Fonte, M.E.D., MPH, gotta cite all of the qualifications. Uh, She's the child of Philippine immigrants, an award-winning intersectional sex and health educator, public speaker, professor, and consultant based in New York City. On Instagram, she's known as your friendly ghost writer, composing the texts you avoid sending about setting your boundaries. Hi, Justine. Hi, Dr. Tara. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm very excited because uh, we're dedicating this whole episode to our like Asian communities. Awesome. All about supporting our people. Yep. Okay. Well, my first question, and I think uh, I want to talk about this in terms of like what's out there for, you know, like if, for research and education and all that, but also if you have experienced any of this, what are some Asian sex stereotypes? And, you know, for some of them, like, are they harmful? Are they supportive or positive? Uh, what do you think? I think all stereotypes are harmful because even if it is deemed a positive one, it then puts an expectation for that person to meet that stereotype. Um, And if they don't meet it, then they are less Asian because they're (laughs) not the stereotypical Asian. They're not the Uh Asian people expect or are used to or are um, palatable for. Mm. And I think, um, you know, we need to just get rid of these stereotypes and really just understand who this human being is, um, as opposed to making these snap judgments or assumptions. So some of the stereotypes, um, that I'm going to just put all in the need to get rid of category. Um, we're subservient. We are quiet. We are accommodating. We are, um, Asexualized, hypersexualized object. We are built to serve, to care give, um, and to um, prioritize other people's needs above our own. Wow. What a succinct list. <laughs> I'm yeah. Like, Have you talked yeah. about this before? <laughs> that was a very succinct list. So let's uh let's break that down. Like I, I can see a theme of this like subservience, mm-hmm. right? Because like being accommodating, caretaker, people pleaser, kind, extremely polite, uh, all of these things are under the subservience. Like why are we taught to be subservient, or why do people perceive um, a lot of Asians to be, and not everyone obviously, but a lot of Asians to be subservient? 
I think um, for the Asian American experience, which is the one I can speak to best and might not be the case with Asians who immigrate to the U.S. like my parents, um, you know, we've adopted some cultural traits that are um, meant to be positive. We want to be hospitable. We want people to feel safe. We want people to feel included. We want people to enjoy being around us. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that comes with, you know, this, um, this debt of um, giving all of the time, which I think is a beautiful trait and a beautiful cultural aspect to, um, you know, the Asian community. But when it extends to especially like an immigrant experience, when you're entering a space that is not your own, when you are um, the minority, I feel like that trait gets amplified into one of not sticking up for yourself, not defending yourself, not claiming your worth um, out of fear that it might rock the boat or um, create tension with the more powerful culture. And when you immigrate to a place like the United States, the more powerful culture is whiteness, which is not something Asians are. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of that um, positive cultural traits of, you know, being accommodating and caring um, got twisted in a lot of immigrant experiences out of the need for survival and to really fit in um, where it really was a foreign land for them. Do you feel like that particular sex stereotype is only for Asian women? Oh, absolutely not. I think you think um, also Asian men are also seen as like uh like passive and not you know um what's a good word not like sexually confident or mm, like just or just desexualized right 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 um is so, that a thing oh absolutely absolutely thanks to media absolutely um I think in in general who else experiences something similar I think femmes of other races and ethnicities absolutely there's this need to, you know, for the way we raise young girls um, to be subservient, to be accommodating, to be caring. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the additional aspect of being an Asian femme um, just really amplifies that stereotype. I think when it comes to um, Asian men, um, it's not so much that they are, you know, um, subservient or accommodating, but they are meant to not rock the boat. They're meant to be quieter. They're meant to, they're expected to be weaker and not be as assertive. Um, And, you know, I think where media comes in is how they have really subjected a lot of um, Asian male characters to be this caricature of weakness and, um, you know, not being something that can be desired in a sexual or romantic way. Um, And, you know, the, the, the stereotypical, you know, roles are very much linked to um, antisocial, um, doesn't know how to, you know, um, you know, create romance, um, isn't really seen as someone that can be a sexual being. And so the way we look at a lot of Asian men, even still to this day in 2022, is very much not in a way that we would a white man or a black man where we can say, oh, he's hot, he's attractive. Um, and you know, I think media is doing better with that representation, um, but it definitely is still a marginalization for a lot of Asian men. Wow. Now that I think about it, I think I've read a study that prior to 2005, there was not a single, uh, quote unquote, sexy Asian male on TV. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's uh, like, you know, it's, it's interesting how that definitely shapes reality for people. Absolutely. Right? Even though media- it might not be a truthful reality, but it is reality. Totally. I think for better or for worse, media creates consciousness. Right. And as a result of that, you know, um, people who aren't familiar with the Asian culture or they don't have a lot of Asian people around them, they use media as their education for who we are. Mm. And if we think back on, all right, well, then who's running media? Who's mm. behind those cameras? Who are the producers through the directors? It tends to still be white men. Mm-hmm. And so it's through their gaze of how they want to see Asian people and particularly Asian men. Um, and and I think like for like the Men's Health magazine, it wasn't since Jet Li in the 90s that there was an Asian man until Simu Liu, I think just two years ago. And that was a huge deal that yeah. the second Asian man <laughs> made it to the front cover of Men's Health in the U.S. Wow. I'm uh, I'm shocked. <laughs> that that's the case. And now that I think about it, that's true. Uh, I recently came across this TikTok where this guy goes around and asks public opinion. And one of the questions was, who would you not date? And he mm. went around a college campus asking a bunch of uh, different girls, like maybe 12 different girls, women, 12 different women. Um, and uh, almost all of them said Asian. Mm. Uh, which... I can see that predicament for Asian men, how, you know, uh, just long, long period of representation uh, on the media. And also, I think our culture and communication styles, like family and how we're raised, all of that kind of pile on the Asian men um, situation and it makes me feel like, but what can we do? Right, right. I mean, what I you want to ask you, there, what can we do? <laughs> I mean, we can do a part of it is having a conversation like this. I think most people don't realize this. They're not thinking about, you know, sexology research often. And yet it is so much a part of our actual re- IRL experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the data that you're sharing about, you know, um, not dating Asian men to a group of, you know, college women. Um, very much is parallel to the studies that OkCupid has collected over the years. The group that gets the most right swipes and matches are Asian women. The group that gets the least left, uh, sorry, the least amount of right swipes or matches are Asian men. How 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 does the same, you know, uh, racial group have such a divide purely based on gender? Well, Thanks to racism and the way that we are sexist and the way that, you know, white supremacy is still very much powerful and have uh, dictated a lot of people's lenses. That is why there's such a divide. Asian women are hypersexualized and Asian men are desexualized. Interesting. When when you say Asian women are hypersexualized in my personal experience when I look around and as an international student, right? Mm -hmm. uh, When I came here, I went to an international student orientation. And when I think about that experience, most Asian women in that room, I would say seem asexual, Mm. like seem not sexual at all. Uh, So do you feel like this is an American thing where like, oh, an Asian woman is very sexual? Because I feel like in my country, uh, I'm I'm originally from Thailand and I go back there very often. My whole family is there. I feel like in my culture, like women are not that sexual. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you yeah, think? I, I think it has nothing to do with who the people actually are and all about perception and how oftentimes media is portraying people that look like them. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of this in terms of Hollywood um, started when the movie A Full Metal Jacket came out. And when that movie came out, there were, you know, these uh, mili- U.S. military soldiers that landed, I think, in in Thailand. And there was a <laughs> sex worker walking around the streets saying, me love you long time. Me oh. love you long time. Oh, that's and that became, movie. Mm-hmm, and this became the start of using a phrase like that even in 40-Year-Old Virgin, in South Park, in so many other movies that it's become this thing where, oh, so, you know, Asian femmes are deemed as um, sexual objects present to serve white men. And this phrase is like funny. And, you know, people think it's like, okay. And it's just like, this is who you are. And isn't this a compliment? It means that we think you're hot. Um, You know, Austin Powers and, you know, the 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 Japanese twins that he's attracted to, their names are like Fook you and Fook me. I mean, how much more racist can we get? And yet how many how many laughs did that, you know, yeah. conjure? And so, you know, this is very much rooted in American media for sure. Um, I know that culture the best, so I can't speak so much on the international level. But I know that, you know, the U.S. military has definitely um, been impacted by this every time they, you know, pull into a port fly into a base and um the you know the that type of colonization still exists even if you're not you know in taking over a land you are definitely infiltrating its culture and for a lot of um you know these asian femmes see this as maybe a way out of their own country to be able to be this become this mail order bride or to become this um, subservient wife um, in a better world that is America. Mm. And so this is very much, you know, rooted in history. It's rooted in a lot of the racism that we've been experiencing and definitely in in Hollywood films. Yeah. Uh, Have you seen 90 Day Fiance? I have seen some episodes. Have you seen, well, have you seen the Asian ones like from the Philippines? Um, I've seen clips of it, but there is a reason I don't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, there's a reason I don't watch a lot of of those because of, you, of that get, reduction. Like, <laughs> well, because we're upset. being right. Yeah. I mean, we're being reduced to our our race or being reduced to our ethnicity mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, who we are that happens to be of that race or ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we reduce someone to that one identity, we're not seeing them as this multifaceted human being. And that is exactly what makes, you know, um, beauty complex is like so many layers of our identities. But when we're reduced to what we look like, it makes sense why, you know, looking Asian is enough to get you Asian hate crimes, as we have seen in recent news in the U.S. Super scary. It's super scary. Um, And another stereotype that came to my mind instantly as I was asking that question is uh, Asian men have small dicks. Uh, What do you think about that? I think that people need to wake up. I think people need to stop reducing whatever they've learned to, you know, rumors and to media. I mean, to, you know, offer an additional stereotype, this uh, stereotype that Asian women, you know, have tight vaginas because uh-huh. you're small and you're petite and you're you're I've never you're, heard of that. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. And therefore, the stereotype that like, oh, I 
want you not just because you would be the ideal wife, but mm-hmm. also you would feel tighter than most other people that, you know, I might have been active with. And so there's just all of this, you know, um, again, stere- these stereotypes that might seem positive, might seem negative. All of it is bad because it is exactly that, a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And like you said, reducing a person, a multifaceted human being to just right. this one thing. Right. Like, oh, it doesn't matter what she has accomplished. She's just this one thing. Right. Uh, and right. what a disservice. Absolutely. Uh, we were talking offline a little bit about uh, the the experiences of the people like the Asians in Asia, like Asians in the Philippines, like you were mentioning. And I was talking about Thailand and how like that's slightly different. And you were talking about that examples of Thailand and the Philippines. Can you talk about that? Um, yeah. So most of my experience with the Philippines is in the is in the provinces and not so much Metro Manila. Um, and I want to make that distinction because I know that culturally they are drastically different. So if anyone's listening in and thinks of the Philippines as just Manila, um, right. this is not going to necessarily relate um, or be translatable t- um, t- to you. But for those that are familiar with, you know, provinces, this is this is where my family is from in two different provinces and the reproductive health organization that I am a board of director of is also based in um, one of the other provinces. So I'm most familiar with three different provinces. That is um, Romblon, Nueva Vizcaya, and Palawan. And these are far, like in terms of literal distance from Manila. Um, and therefore, the experiences of that, you know, rural nature tend to be ones that are extremely draconian, rooted in the Catholic faith, um, and extremely misogynistic and patriarchal. Um, that sense of sexual liberation or even, um, you know, owning and being empowered by your sexuality is definitely not fully present in Manila, but it is um, definitely not something even being considered in the provinces. So, you know, when you're in a metropolis like, you know, Manila, there's going to be more diversity of thought and um, education um, available and international influence that um, is going to allow for um, possibly more avenues and outlets to be sexually liberated. But in, you know, these rural areas of the provinces, it's definitely not the case. Um, And there is really not an understanding of sex being anything except for the purpose of procreation um, and of power in terms of, you know, sexual violence. But the idea of pleasure coming from sex is extremely taboo and rarely discussed. Wow. So uh, in those provinces, um, women with their like vibrator masturbating is not a thing. I mean, I don't even know where you could buy a vibrator in any of the provinces. <laughs> what about honestly. Manila? Probably, probably it- more so in Manila again, okay. but um, it's not where I have the most experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I'm sure there mm-hmm. is a sex toy shop, an adult video store, mm-hmm. um, or you know, a hundred in Manila. Right. Uh, you know, there is a quote red light district in right. Manila, and oftentimes those are occupied by white men and you know Same. European white men. Yeah. who are coming in for vacation, looking for a bride and um, hoping to uh, leave with 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 somebody. Um, and you so said it's this bride thing a couple times. Can mm-hmm. you talk more about that? Like, do people actually go find a bride? Oh, yeah. Oh, is yeah. It a thing? Is it a whole industry? Like, what is this? Like, I've, I mean, I've you, seen 90 Day Fiance, but I thought that was sure. an individual case. 
Sure. So, I mean, if you Google mail order bride and put images or just see info, you'll often see that something connected to the Philippines is oh. is usually at the top of that search. Um, and, you know, because of that stereotype beyond what I shared about Asian stereotypes, you know, being subservient, a Filipino wife is the ideal wife because of our hospitality, because of our ability to speak English, because of it's a, one of our national languages. So it's just a very tourist friendly place for you to find someone that you can communicate with and carry all their favorite Asian stereotypes as well. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. this this type of stereotype is one that I've experienced here from an Uber driver in New York City. I, what did he say? Get into the car. Um, Uber driver looks back and says, Justine, I said, hi. Yep, that's me, you know, going to XYZ place. And uh, the question is, oh, um, what are you? Which is a typical answer I'll get in, you know, the United States of America, because it's their way of asking me, you know, how foreign I am. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm rolling my eyes and thinking, uh, is it today that I address the microaggression or do I just get this over with because I want now a quiet car? Yeah, yeah. And so I just <laughs> how much address it. And I, do you want to put in? <laughs> I said, uh, you know, so like, you know, where are you from or what are you? And I said, I'm Filipina. And I figured like that would be end of conversation. But of course not. Uh, the conversation continues where, you know, the driver says, oh, Filipina, <laughs> how many friends have told me that a Filipina wife is the ideal wife? Really? And what was interesting about this um, this day was actually I was on route to a Filipina production on um, you know, the colonization of our bodies uh, that I was actually producing and was a performer in as well. And so it was just, you know, this very, um, uh, you know, difficult moment where I was like, I am trying to be so beyond this world. And this is a very clear reminder of the world that I actually remain in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being reduced to this idea. And so I kind of just like nodded in my head, didn't respond, didn't want to, you know, entertain this conversation. But this is this is how people see us. And, you know, like Christina Yuna Lee, rest in peace, February 13th of this year, right, um, is is stabbed multiple times on her way home in Chinatown in the middle of the night from a complete stranger. And reports say that during the interview, he said, well, I was sexually motivated by her, who was a complete stranger. So how are you sexually motivated by someone you've never met before? Oh, because you've reduced her face and her race to a sexual object and something that you're used to jacking off to because her body is one of the, you know, top search terms on Pornhub. Yeah. Whoa. That's, that's crazy. I, so this is what he said. This is what he said. Same thing happened in Atlanta at the massage parlor, the Korean women that died by the shooting asked the same, the, the perpetrator, the same thing, a white man having a bad day. He said, I needed to get rid of my temptations. Whoa. He doesn't know these people, these masseuses, That's but he associates up. temptations with, um, you know, these Asian women. So it's not about like how this affects our dating life and all of that. This is literal life-saving content that we need yeah. to be talking about yeah. because people are only talking about this in the context of, of violence and yeah. Asian trauma. Right, right. 
I'm glad that we're merging both and that I can like put this out there and people can learn how like all of these things that I mean, I for one, you know, as someone who like came from abroad and came here, I didn't understand a lot of these like Asian American um uh what's the word? discourse that when I was in grad school that people were talking about because I'm I have a completely different experience. Uh, but now I'm starting to learn more and more from educators, one like you, uh, where some of these stereotypes that I, as an international student, used to think it was funny, uh, are actually disrupting people's lives to the point where, I mean, it's like like life and death. And it's so scary. And I hope that we can put more of this stuff out there so that people can learn to be more aware uh, and mindful of their words and mindful of how they interact uh, people of our Asian communities in a, in a more compassionate ways. So right. now that we like kind of talk about like others and how these stereotypes come to be and how uh, it, I guess the word is like how it's enacted. What about us? Like, what about our families? And what are some challenges that we as, you know, Asians of different cultures experience when it comes to sexuality and sexual empowerment due to our own like cultural factors and beliefs? Mm -hmm. I mean, I can speak best to, you know, the Filipino American yeah. culture, of course, as uh, someone who is Filipina. And uh, a lot of the struggles that I know my community has with talking about sexual liberation and empowerment is um, that our culture is so intertwined with the Catholic Church. And um, I'm not talking about Catholic Church in the way that most Americans or even South Americans experience it, where you know, you're attending, you're a cafeteria Catholic, you pick and choose what you like from the religion. I'm talking about draconian, patriarchal, um, you know, Catholic uh, practices. Uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, when I was doing um, uh, some grad school work and my research in the Philippines, there were a lot of people protesting the new pope saying that, you know, the pope is not as Catholic as the Philippines. And, um, you know, it was because he was like opening up to this idea that queer people, you know, are God's people, too. And already that was going so against the draconian angles that Filipinos were used to. Um, you know, I I recall when uh, the reproductive health bill was trying to be passed, which would allow for particularly sex education to become a little bit more comprehensive than abstinence only. There would be um, other aspects of this of these restrictions in place that if you were trying to get the birth control pill at a pharmacy, it wasn't showing a prescription that they would then allow you to have it. It would be showing a wedding band on your ring finger <laughs> to prove that you are in a faithful monogamous relationship, uh, you know, under the law and now you're allowed to maybe protect yourself from pregnancy if you don't want to. Oh, wow. There so were similar restrictions with condom access and, you know, wanting to just get condoms. Well, no, because sex is not for pleasure. Sex is for procreation. So mm -hmm. why are you accessing this? So, I mean, a lot of these things with, you know, not separating church and state in the Philippines have drastic implications on people's access to not just their reproductive health, but their entire well-being. 
So uh, does this like belief and how it's practiced transfer to Filipinos that moved here? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, for myself, you know, growing up a Filipino Catholic and attending Catholic school, I felt very much similar experiences to my cousins in the provinces and the types of schools they were going to, which by default were Catholic. Even if it wasn't, you know, um, a tuition paying school that, you know, therefore a public one, because it's just so much a part of the culture is being Mm -hmm. Catholic. I think it's upwards to like 86 percent of the country is Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, having that strong majority means that most of the people occupying Congress and Congress and other government leadership are also going to be Catholic. And they want votes that, um, you know, are coming from Catholic people or they um, need the leverage of the bishops Mm -hmm. in order to get their wins. And therefore, uh, their platforms are very much catered towards draconian Catholic teachings. Wow. I have personally seen a lot of um, people of Catholic faith or that they grew up Catholic having a lot of sexual uh, shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them can't even get over like masturbating, especially mm-hmm. women. Uh, that- they're like, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to masturbate. Because you know, all so of that has been sex with my husband. Right. All of that has been, is, has been connected to pleasure and pleasure is not something you're supposed to be experiencing. You're, you're there to reproduce. We have reduced you to a reproductive object to populate more Catholics. When, so when, when um, I've talked to some Catholic uh, sex educators and they say, well, no, we, we focus on like the love at that sacred bond between husband and wife. And it's not about like, oh, wife is just there to reproduce. It's like wife is, what was the word that they use? Like, um, like precious almost. Mm. And that like the husband needs to protect and, you know, sex is sacred. And therefore, it's not just something you do, like, it's not something you do by yourself or something like that, which I mean, personally, I'm against because I'm all about solo sex is valid. But what what do you think about that rebuttal that like the sacred and like the bond and all of that? So, I mean, I take issues with a lot of those statements, but I'll start (laughs) with the part that I agree with. Yeah, I'm also for pro-intimacy and people having, Mm. you know, a connection in their relationships. That's the only overlap I have with whoever you're (laughs) quoting. Right. Um, I have a problem with them limiting their definition of intimacy to a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. I have a problem with them um, using the words precious for the woman and Mm -hmm. protector for the man. Mm -hmm. These are very much riddled in misogynistic and patriarchal structures. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, not being inclusive of the variety of different relationships of people of of a variety of different genders Mm -hmm. that can be intimate with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not saying that I want people to have loveless intimacy. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that intimacy looks like a lot of things. Yeah. And actually, oftentimes, intercourse does not include intimacy. Mm -hmm. This is why we have a Me Too movement. Sure, a lot of people are having sex. That doesn't mean people are experiencing intimacy, Mm -hmm. right? Rape is not 
something that we need to normalize Mm -hmm. and put in that category of being the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we need to really start understanding the variety of different ways that people can get to know their body and understand their desires Mm -hmm. and how those desires can connect to another body of any gender. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, like the way that, you know, you were describing those those Catholic sex educators, it's limiting Mm -hmm. and it's um, homophobic. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, cisnormative um, and it's heteronormative. It's misogynistic. It's all the things that are keeping us from really progressing and becoming fully safe and truly protected sexual human beings. So I uh, I grew up going to a Catholic school and I've never received sex education. Uh, like there was never a class, not even not even science, like not even sexual health. It's just none at all. Uh, but this was Catholic school in Thailand. Um, did you get sex education? Catholic school in the United States uh, is similar to Catholic school in Thailand, um, <laughs> even still to this day. So my sex ed experience at my K through eight experience was called family life education. It happened in fifth family grade. Life. Mm-hmm. It happened in fifth grade and it was one class. This class was divided up by gender. And uh, they, we didn't have enough male teachers in our Catholic school. So they brought the D.A.R.E. educator. Oh. Dare, what does D.A.R.E. stand for? Drugs. <laughs> I don't even remember what it stands for. But it's like the drug prevention uh, program that doesn't work. So the D.A.R.E. educator was a police officer. And so oh, that police wow. officer came in to talk to the boys about I don't know what. Um, but I know that in my class where it was me and... Um, you know, the other girls in my class, it was being taught by our homeroom teacher. And I recall a classmate of mine asking, if boys get boners, what do girls get? And my teacher replied, periods. And that was family life slash sex education. (laughs) Wow. How much did you learn, Justine, in this family life class? I learned that um, Catholic school needs to improve sex education. That's what I learned. Mm. That's all I learned. But that's the only time that they ever discussed anything about our bodies um, that, um, you know, was a missed opportunity to really give us what we needed to take care of ourselves and not feel shame. Mm -hmm. Do you educate in high schools now also? I do. So I'm actually, um, my trade is really in a K through 12 um, education setting, but I am now, you know, an adjunct professor. So I teach Mm -hmm. grad school courses on sex education. um, And I do conferences and speaking engagements of all sorts to a variety of different people and ages, mainly still centered on how do we talk to young people K through 12 um, about sex. So I'm doing the very opposite of the education I got. Yeah, yeah, which is so necessary. It's needed. Uh, I teach a a course called sexual communication, and it focuses on different communication variables that surround like sexuality, sex, gender, sexuality, sexual behavior, and so forth. But uh, I'm surprised every time I have, you know, a room full of college students, and we do like raise of hand, uh, if you received sex education okay people like raise their hands like raise of hand you feel like your sex education was helpful like no one raises their hands mm-hmm. <laughs> like no one uh so that what does that say you know uh, it says that we're still in the exact same place we were um or like know, in how terms long of or like 
50 years or more? Oh, God, no. I mean, since the beginning of humankind. <laughs> like, you know, so long as the patriarchy has existed, yeah. so has a lack of comprehensive sex education that's actually relevant to, to people. I mean, when I'm thinking about, like, sex education, I also think about how, like, sometimes, you know, as... Uh, I don't know if this happens to people of other like ethnic and racial background, but as like an Asian woman and my Asian friends, when we come home, like our parents are very, 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 very silent about sexuality and anything related to sexual health, relationship. You know, it's uh, apart from like when you get to your like 25, then your parents are like, when are you getting married? <laughs> but yeah. before that, it's nothing at all. Is that right? The pattern of Asian American parents, also, you think the uh, I can say that's majority? the pattern in my. I think that's the that's the pattern in my experience, and from what I've mm-hmm. heard from you know my other Asian friends, um, in that yeah, it's uh, you are completely asexual until right. um, I need you to procreate my grandbabies. Right, right. And again, it's not when you're 25; they're now asking about marriage and your sex life. They're asking about when are you getting married so that right. I can have grandchildren and we can continue on with our, you know, legacy right, and our gene right, pool expanding right. and multiplying. It's still very much through a procreative lens. Right. And it's, you know, it doesn't become ever, you know, like, how's your relationship with, you know, your partner now? And like, well, like, are you having sex? Are you talking about it? Are yeah. you seeing a couples therapist? Yeah. Have you tried different things? No, they don't ask about that. They <laughs> aren't doing it themselves. Yeah. Right. Asian, yeah. Asian, the Asian generations, um, you know, above us, we're also sexually repressed and, you know, sexually shamed as well. So they don't have the language, but, you know, it's it's podcasts like yours. It's um, professors like you and I that are disrupting that narrative mm-hmm. so that, you know, the Asians of the younger generation are seeing, oh, look at these elders that yes, are talking elders. about sex, right? <laughs> Wow, elders. Justine, you have to go there. You know what? I, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm a proud mid-30s. I'm a happy mid-30s. I'm, I, I no complaints. I'm in the same mid-30s, yeah. but if you go into a class of sophomores, we're elders, Tyler. That's we're true. That's elders. true. We They were like, you could be my parent. Um, that's true. <laughs> but what is also true is that Asian do, don't raise in. So that's we're going to look like this until we're 80. So, you know. Uh, and then immediately lose like five inches of height. <laughs> all the things. All the things. <laughs> well, on a um, funnier note, um, I saw this whole Reddit uh Reddit, what is it called? What is it called? Reddit hashtag Subreddit? or subreddit? Oh. Yeah, subreddit. Uh-huh. Um, called Yellow Fever. Mm. And I want you to like break break that down for us, sister. <laughs> like, yeah, Yellow you Fever. Know, I, I mean, I I'm from I'm from Thailand, so everyone's yellow. So I I don't I don't know specifically what it is, where it's from, why are we still using it? Yeah, you know, I actually haven't heard that term in at least a decade. So um, you know, it was a bit <laughs> of like a throwback. When I saw it in your email that you wanted to talk about it. Um, How do I define yellow fever? Um, With its roots in white supremacy, (laughs) which is how I often start Uh many of my definitions. um, It is reducing a human being to uh, the, quote, color of their skin. And for the Asian diaspora, um, yellow. Um, And so if someone were to have yellow fever, it means that they are only attracted to or have fetishized and exotified and have a strong preference to only date or romantically or sexually be with someone of um, an Eastern Asian um, descent. 
And oh, so that is, is all you like are to where me. Where men use for women, or is it all everyone use for everyone? I or? think it's everyone using it for everyone. I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the root started with Asian women, and you know, mm. if someone has if someone has yellow fever, we're talking about straight men mm. interested in Asian women only. Um, so to use in a sentence, this guy has yellow fever because his opening line on Tinder to me was, ooh, you're Asian. I love Asian girls. <laughs> uh, here's a big do not. Do not say I love Asians. Like, you know, it's a, uh, and I mean, in other contexts, like, oh, I love Asian cultures or like, oh, I love Filipino cultures. Oh, I love Thai food. That's cool. But if you're like, oh, Oh, you're an a- like, oh, you're from Asia. Oh, I love Asians. Like in that way, it's so gross. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's okay to have appreciation for, you know, my culture, right. to like my food. Like that's right. cool. Um, but to say something like that, I think it's rooted from a much more problematic foundation rather than an actual love and appreciation. Oh, but talk to Tara. Their intentions are so good. They just really <laughs> like us. Why? That's what, because that's what well, all the say. Asian girls I know, they're just so kind and hospitable and caregiving and tight. Like it just goes into the same and thing. Like, I'm telling you, you know, that I'm complimenting you because the stereotypes about you are so positive. And that's why it's not actually positive because they are reducing someone they've never met before to a stereotype and to the mm-hmm. sexual object built to serve and accommodate them. Preach, sister. Well, we're all multifaceted human beings. And so let, oh, let's always remember that, my right. Love Bites fam. Okay, well, my last question is, uh, I looked up Pornhub statistics and the number one search term on Pornhub last year was hentai porn. Uh, and that's like Asian animated Uh, cartoon characters having sex, typically girls with really small waist, huge ass, huge tits, uh, and, you know, being objected to different sexual activities. Uh, What do you think about that? Why is hentai porn number one search term? I think because when it's a cartoon, people can, you know, producers and the directors can get away with a lot more things that would have been deemed illegal if they used actual human beings that weren't just voice actors. Uh Um, And because the Asian um, genre is the most popular genre every year on Pornhub's Mm -hmm. year of review. So how do we get the best of both worlds where we can, you know, have people access their favorite genre that is Asian women in porn and get them to do things that we legally can't get done. Oh, we'll just turn them into our cartoon. So these this Asian anime allows them to do a lot of things that are normally illegal for actual actors. Um, and now people can get off to these um, really heinous um, you know, uh, things without the discussion of consent, without the discussion of the humanity behind what they're watching. Um, and it just further amplifies their, their desires that are, um, reducing Asian women, particularly to these sexual objects in terms of what their bodies are supposed to look like and what their bodies are supposed to do to other people's bodies. Wow. So hentai porn is way more harmful than we what we get face value. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think people feel like, oh, it's a cartoon. It's not that bad. 
it's like, well, I mean, they're, I'm not saying that it's realistic cartoons, but it is portraying human bodies in cartoon form that are, um, you know, taking on unrealistic body standards, first and foremost, and then second, behaving in ways that um, can be illegal in real life, but because it's a cartoon, now people have more access to and normalizes those behaviors um, in without the context of consent being a part of the conversation. Wow, very interesting. And I'm, uh, I find that very insightful. I'm going to have to unpack this on my own and think about that. Uh, I would love to uh, move forward to the last part of my show, which is called 10 Quickies with Dr. Tara. Would you like to play this game with me, Justine? Uh, Always 10 in quickies for a quickie. with Dr. Tara. <laughs> okay, so what it is, is I'm going to give you a word and you just give me a quick response back and it can be anything. Um, it can be professional, personal, or, or just a sound. Okay. <laughs> All right, so let's get to it. Number one, clitoris. Unfound. <laughs> Number two, educational porn. Scarce. Number three, oral sex. Underrated. Number four, squirting. Minority. Number five, fingering. Middle school. <laughs> Number six, bisexuals. Misunderstood. Number seven, sex drive. Undiscussed. Number eight, masturbation. Unshameful. Number nine, kink. Privilege. And number 10, comprehensive sex education. Necessary. Woo! Preach, preach, preach. Uh, where can my Love Bites fam find you? They can check me out on my website, justinefonte.com, or find me on Instagram in two ways. I'm Justine AF, or my boundary setting account where I will ghostwrite texts for you that you're too afraid to compose and send on setting your boundaries. That's at underscore good period buys underscore. Love it. Thank you so much for this very valuable and insightful conversation today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Tara. And my Love Bites fam, thank you so much for listening till the end of the episode. I hope you feel like you've learned a lot in this episode and shoot me a message of what you think. Share this episode to all your friends so we can all learn more and have a more elevated consciousness from all of this knowledge. Uh, other than that, per usual, have an orgasmic day. Do you want to become sexually powerful? If the answer is yes, go to lovebites.co and check out 30 Days to My Best Sexy Self, a Sexual Mindfulness Journal. This ebook will change your life. In this Sexual Mindfulness Journal, I offer the tried and true methods to become more sexually confident. It's for everyone who wants to have the best sex life possible. Thanks for listening. This was, this was Love Bites. Love Bites by Dr. Tara. Follow Dr. Tara on social media at lovebites.co. Have an orgasmic day.